always, I am incredibly thankful uh, that you guys have allowed my family to be a part of your gathering, um, for welcoming us with open arms. I think, I remember the first time that my wife and I visited, um, we showed up and we were sitting, it was like whenever we had the pews, and I honestly don't remember where we were sitting, but I do remember that before the service and after the service, we were swarmed by everyone of just like, there's someone, let's introduce ourselves. And I met more people than I ever had that day um, because of your friendliness and your like welcoming hearts. And so I'm very thankful that you guys have allowed us to continue to be a part of this family um, that is loving and welcoming, um, especially during a time like this where God has chosen us, his bride at Northwest Baptist, to advance his kingdom and bring others to him as you guys all live your lives in response to his Holy Spirit. Like, just look at what happened last week. We had a team of pretty much our entire college ministry go to Provo to share the gospel with a group of people that has never really heard of the gospel before. And Lexi and Amari's story of people being like, wow, I've never heard that before is a story that every single one of us had as we went and shared the gospel. People who have heard of the name of Jesus, had heard of the name of God, but had never actually heard that grace comes with no strings attached. In fact, this is the shirt that they gave us while they were over there. And they wear it because it literally raises questions. Like I've never worn a a piece of clothing where someone's been like, where does that come from? But because the concept of grace coming at no cost is so different, They wear these shirts and literally people are like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And they're able to share the gospel through that, which is pretty cool. Um, And we have a team in Santa Cruz right now that are there encouraging the church and sharing the gospel with people who maybe have heard it, but they've never actually understood it. And if they have ever met a Christian, most likely they were not received with love. And a big part of that church that they're a part of is that they are known for serving the community. They literally spend so much time cleaning people's windows and helping out different businesses around the area so that Christ's name can be associated with love and service and not picket fences and shouting at other people. Uh, And the church is getting well known because of that and God's gospel is going forth because of it. And so like it is amazing time to be a part of God's bride here. And last week, as our team landed in Provo, Rob put a pause to our normal uh, going through the Old Testament this year so that we can take a deep look at the life of Christ because of his sacrifice and resurrection. This is the start of our Easter series, and he's calling it So That You May Have Life. So That You May Have Life. So everything that we talk about in this series is going to come from the Gospel of John, and it's going to be looked at from the perspective of we receive life in Christ. And so even today, as we talk about John 12, 20 through 26, we are going to be hearing about how we have life in Christ through the things that he taught. And if you're a guest with us today, honestly, we're super pumped that you're here. Especially today, because we are going to talk about the fundamental truths of the Christian life. You could not have picked a better time. These truths that we're going to talk about are the truths that transform us, the ones that shape Christians' uh, abilities or the way that Christians see the rest of the world to us waking up in the morning and the big things that are going on, like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. These truths this morning transform us. And these truths are actually why we're all gathered here today. You see, we don't gather here at Northwest simply because it's Sunday morning and that's what we've always done. 
but we are meant to gather so that we can worship God together, encourage one another so that we can live in the life that Christ gives us throughout the week. Which is exciting. Thanks. I don't know who said amen, but like that's, that's exciting. That's awesome. Amen. Um, so I pray today that you guys would be encouraged to live for Christ's life and resurrection, which is actually why the gospel of John was written in the first place. You see, John tells us in John 20, 30 through 31, why he writes his gospel down. And it should be up on the screen. John 20, 20 through 21, John 20, 30 through 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the things that we're going to talk about today, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus has come to save and that in believing you may have life in Christ's name. So we're talking about a life, not like the fact that my heart is beating and that I can breathe, but a life that actually matters, a life that is meaningful, a life that's lived for something that lasts longer than we will, a life that's lived for eternity. So the things that we're going to talk about today are about how we can have life in Christ so that we can live for eternity. But the target is Christ. We're meant to look upon Christ so that we can live for eternity. And so therefore, my prayer for all of us this morning has been this. That through the searching of his spirit in our hearts, Jesus would call us to a lifestyle that reflects the life that we have in Jesus. And that by him doing this, we may have even more life in his name. So I've been praying that through the searching of his spirit in our hearts, Jesus would call us to a lifestyle that reflects the life that he gives us. And that by doing this, we would have more life in his name. And so let's pray for that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for just that. That through looking at your scriptures and through your spirit examining us, Lord, you would stir us and call us and empower us by your grace to live a life that is reflective of the life that you give us, that is lived out of a worthy response of your salvation and of your gospel. And Lord, I pray that as we take a step of faith after we hear what you have to say to us, Lord, that you would continue to fulfill your promise and give us life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to take a drink real quick. Hang on. Whew. I don't know how Rob does this without water sometimes, man. It's crazy. So in December, uh, we, our church sent a group of college students and Steve Klug to, oh, and a couple others, very young people and Steve, to a conference. <laughs> He's very excited and energetic, so he fit right in. But we were sent to a conference called CrossCon. It's centered around uh, 18 to 25-year-olds, but the whole goal of the conference is for us to live the life that Jesus calls us to live. The last things that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven in the book of Matthew, he said this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Essentially, I'm in charge. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so in response to this that Jesus said, the conference is about two types of Christians. 
There's only two types of ways that we can respond to to this message right here. We can either be a goer, which is a person who goes and walks in obedience to what God says in the Great Commission. In verse 19, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so a goer is someone who goes to the people who have never heard the gospel before and lives their life discipling them so that they may know. In case you guys had no idea, 3.6 billion people or probably more, more than half of the world's population on the other side of the world will live their entire life and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. That means they will be born, live their life, marry someone, get a family, have kids, get old and die, and they will not ever know who Jesus is. In other words, they will be born, live a life of rebellion to God that deserves judgment for eternity and die without ever hearing about how they can be saved from that. More than half of the world will never hear of the gospel at this point. And so they say, in response to God saying, go make disciples of all nations, we go to those nations. Someone who lives in obedience to this. They also say there is a second response. This response, in my opinion, has maybe more burden than the first. The second response is there is a sender. A sender. So there's a goer and a sender. The sender lives in obedience to God's call to stay. So we already know that God calls us to go because of verse 19 says, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. So God's already called us to go, but God has chosen a specific few to send. These are people that he calls to stay where they have grown up or where they're living. We would stay in Oklahoma City for one purpose, to disciple, train, and share the gospel with people here so that they can be sent overseas. A sender disciples people, not just to disciple people, but they disciple people so that they can go overseas. The sender is the cannon in which believers are launched into the unreached, one after the other, just sent to those 3.6 billion who have never heard. The sender's burden is heavier in my opinion because it's way easier to get distracted when you're living at home. But don't get distracted. You either go or you send. There, are, there is not a third option. And so both people, a goer and a sender, are living in obedience to Christ's call in their life. And both people are living a life in Christ. But that's actually not why I bring up this story. You see, we were in a hotel that was about two blocks from the conference center. And every day we had to walk up a hill to get to this conference center. And there were a group of brothers in Christ that were not part of the conference, but they knew what the conference was about. They stood outside of the conference holding a sign. The sign said this, can you name 10 teachings of Jesus? Can you name 10 teachings of Jesus? And then had a cute question mark at the end. And they knew what the conference was about. They're playing off of what Jesus says in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And so they're like, do you know 10 things that Jesus commanded us to do? And I don't think the point was for you to name 10 things. Like I, I honestly, I sat there and I was like, okay, love your neighbor. And I was like trying to, trying to name 10. But even if I could name 10, that's not the point. The point is our life is meant to be centered around the life and teaching of God. But if I do not know the things that Jesus taught, how can I center my life around him? You may be thinking, Scott, you know the main idea of what Jesus taught. And I'd say, you're right. I do know the main idea. 
But I may know the main idea, but if I'm supposed to teach my disciples all the things that Jesus taught, I have a problem because I don't know it all. In the passage today, John 12, 20 through 26, is a passage that personally I forgot. A teaching of Jesus that I was reminded of when Rob asked me to preach this passage. And when I went to the Lord studying John 12, 20 through 26, the Holy Spirit convicted me deeply about the way that I had been living in disobedience to his teachings here. It is one thing that I forgot and something that I pray that we would have a moment where the Holy Spirit pulls us deeper into a relationship with him and that he would cultivate our lives to live for him through this message here. At Northwest Baptist, before we read a passage, we stand for the first time. Not because it is tradition. I hear you all shuffling. Not because it is tradition, but because these are the words of the creator. We are serious about these words and we hear them and follow them with our lives because these were written so that we may have life. And so as we stand, we stand saying, we know that there's nothing we can do that is worthy of you. Yet we are broken before your holiness and submissive, ready to respond to you. So as we stand to read God's scriptures, stand ready to respond, submissive to what he has to say. So this is John 12, 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You may be seated. So what's happening here? This is a short section of scripture. And if I was to just start preaching what this said without giving you the context, we'd be in big trouble. A great practice when we read the scriptures is knowing what happens before and what happens after the verse or the passage that we read. Why did John write this in the first place? Who is John in the first place? What is happening right here with Jesus? And so let me tell you. As we know, John, the author of the book, is Jesus' beloved disciple. He walked side hand in hand with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. And now currently, John is writing this to remind the believers of their life in Christ. The life that God gives us in union with God. Right now in verse 12, Jesus' ministry is coming to a close. He has just gone and resurrected his friend Lazarus from the grave. And Jews that saw the resurrection of Lazarus ran to Jerusalem before Jesus, told everybody about him. And then Jesus rode in on a donkey, high and proud, as everyone said, Hosanna, Hosanna, and laid palm branches before his feet. You now see how it's relating to Easter. So he, they laid down palm branches as though he walked in as royalty. And sitting there at the Passover feast, he said these words which these facts actually lead us to verse 20 and our first point today. And if you are looking at our new bulletin that opens up beautifully and has the amazing points on there, I hate to tell you the points are wrong. Um, I was preparing this message during a mission trip and whenever I got back, the Lord told me to change the points. So the points on there, we're going to talk about that, but the points will also be up there on the screen. Um, so 
also how we're going to approach the passage is we're going to go verse by verse, section by section, because um, that's the best way to see this passage. So it's super linear. So the first point comes from verses 20 through 22, which is this. Seek Jesus as he is. Seek Jesus as he is. Now, if you're reading that or writing it down, you might think that's a little bit weird wording. You'll understand why it's weird in a second. It comes from verses 20 through 22, which says this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And so, let's look at verse 20. It says, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Feast. What feast are we talking about here? We're talking about the Passover feast. Um, And the Passover feast was a feast that the Jews celebrated yearly that was very similar to the Jewish celebration or version of Easter. So Easter, we remember the things that Jesus has done, his death and resurrection from the grave. And we celebrate Easter to remind ourselves of the life we have in Christ. Passover is actually very similar and parallels Easter, where Passover was a time when God's judgment passed over them and they were saved, and then they celebrate that salvation. To give you some more specifics, during or before Passover, the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. And God heard the cries of his people and sent Moses to talk to Pharaoh. And every time Moses says, Pharaoh, let God's people go, Pharaoh's heart would be hard. He would be bitter. And he'd say, no. And then Moses would say, Pharaoh, there's going to be judgments coming for your rebellion. And Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let them go. So each time Moses asked, Pharaoh said no, and God would send judgment upon Egypt. Either locusts that destroyed the crops, blood filling the Nile, or boil covering every Egyptian from head to toe. The final judgment was heavy. See, Moses went to Pharaoh and asked, Pharaoh, let God's people go. Pharaoh said no, bitter and boily said, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God told Moses that he is going to send his judgment upon Israel and that the firstborn of every household will be killed. For my household, that's a big problem because I'm the firstborn, my wife is the firstborn, and our only son is firstborn. So we would all be killed. But God loves his people and he doesn't want to destroy them. And so he told them That they would not be destroyed if they killed an unblemished lamb and took the blood of the lamb and spread it on their doorpost. Yes, if the blood of an unblemished lamb covered their household, God's judgment would pass over them. So anyone who had the blood of the lamb covering them, God's judgment passed over them. It was a Passover. So they celebrated Passover to celebrate God's judgment coming over them. Then we keep looking at verse 20. They're at the feast, and then there were some Greeks. John is very intentional in mentioning this, because the Greeks are not Jews. Jews were passed over. These Greeks were not. And so these Jews were coming up to worship Yahweh because they knew that he was worthy of worship, but they did not belong there. They were uh, foreign or foreigners. They would walk in and everyone would look at them like, what are they doing here? But... They came so that they could see Jesus. Check out verse 21. These came to Philip. So a bunch of Greeks walked up to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. 
What most likely happened that I assume is that these Greeks heard about Jesus from wherever they were. Someone probably came hearing about the amazing miracles that Jesus did, the teachings that Jesus had, his love and compassion for people. And they came to the Greeks and said, this is this guy, Jesus. And then the Greeks heard about that. But they weren't content or comfortable with knowing Jesus through the message of somebody else. They said, we need to know him ourselves. You might say he is this way, but we need to go see for ourselves. And so then they came to the Passover seeking Christ. They weren't comfortable with knowing Jesus through someone else. They wanted to know him for themselves. This is actually something that would really help the LDS church if they did this. You see, what happens is in the LDS faith, they have bishops that preach every Sunday morning. And they will preach a passage like this one. And they will tell their congregation about how God the Father was actually a man that lived on another planet somewhere else. And became a God himself. And Jesus is literally his firstborn son. Which means he's all of our older brothers. And he would preach this passage talking about how Jesus is actually our brother. And that the gospel is through a bunch of works. And then whenever the LDS people go and read this passage on their own. They don't seek Christ for who he is here. They read it through the lens of the pastor who told them what the truth was. This is really bad practice because I can be up here saying anything that I want. And if you just take that, you could be wrong and we could miss Christ. And that's why thousands of people are not knowing what the gospel is because they're not seeking Jesus for themselves. They're taking what somebody else said about it. Now, I'm not saying that Rob is up here preaching a false gospel. He spends time diligently studying the word and he knows the Lord. And I am not saying that I am up here preaching a false gospel. That'd be ridiculous. What we're talking about is the true gospel. But don't miss this. If you hear something that's good, hear something that sounds true, go seek and find it for yourself. Do not be okay with just attending this service, hearing about how Jesus is or hearing about the truth from this passage and then just taking that and saying, okay, go seek Jesus for yourself. Remember, these words are written so that we may believe in Jesus and have life in him. Life is found in Christ, not who others say that Christ is, but who Christ actually is. So seek Jesus as he is. Follow the example of these Greeks. Go seek him, know him personally, intimately. Everything that we're about to talk about after this comes from our focus and target being on Christ, knowing him deeper than we know anything else. He is the one that we need to know and he is the source of life. And notice that it doesn't say one Greek, but it says some Greeks. And so a group of Gentiles sought the Lord together. We sort of do this on a Sunday morning, but in a more intimate setting, we do this in our community groups where we take together and we take time to seek the Lord with one another so that we can all know Jesus intimately together. And so brothers and sisters, seek the Lord individually, know him intimately and seek the Lord in community so that you all together can know him intimately. This is where I've seen life change happen. You can ask the people at Utah and especially ask Chris, In community, when you seek the Lord together, lives change and people are changed and you are stirred up to live a life in Christ and to tell others about him. And these are just the first two verses. We haven't even gotten to what Jesus said yet. The second point comes from verses 23 through 24. The second point is this. Jesus magnifies himself over everything else. 
Jesus magnifies himself over everything else. Check out verses 23 through 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A question that we're going to be asking, and this one is in your bulletin, that we're going to be asking while we look at these is what does Jesus saying about himself? What is Jesus saying about himself here actually? He's responding to them in verse 23. And Jesus answered them. Notice how the passage doesn't say that he's answering the Greeks, and it definitely doesn't say that he's answering Andrew and Philip, which leads me to believe that he's answering both. He's answering all people. So the things that he's about to say applies to the Gentiles and the Jews, the believer and the non-believer. It applies to everyone, the things he's about to say. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He said, the hour has come. It's my time to be glorified. I am going to be glorified now. But what does that mean? In our culture, we use that word glory all the time. In, in high school, our like mantra for any sort of sports was like, for him, for him to be glorified. And so we're in the huddle and we'd be like, for him, touchdown, let's go. And then everything we do would be for his glory. Uh, don't let me pretend I never touched the field in football. Um, yeah, don't let me lie to you. I was not very good. Um, but what does that mean to be glorified? We do all of our work unto the Lord so that he may be glorified. We raise our family so that we, he can be glorified. We live for him so that we, he can be glorified. But what does that actually mean? If you do a quick Google search or go to Blue Letter Bible, again, I'm no scholar, so for me to know the Greek, I've got to Google it. So if you go to Google and you find out what that word is in the Greek, that word is the word doxazo, which means to think of, to hold in honor, to praise and to magnify. So he's saying it is time, the hour has come for the son of man to be thought of. The time has come for the son of man to be honored. The time has come for the son of man to be praised and the time has come for me to be magnified. So how is he gonna be magnified? Verse 24. Truly, truly, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, you've gotta kind of imagine it with like a thousand exclamation marks at the end. Truly, truly is like, what I'm saying is true and really true. So whenever we read this, we've really got to pay attention. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea what that means. Um, So you have to spend a lot of time in prayer. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is why knowing the context is important here. Because no less than a couple days later, Jesus is taken to the cross and crucified. And so he's saying, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is where the gospel comes in. You see, God created this world perfect. So that we and all of the rest of his creation can have perfect union with him. But because he loves us, he gave us the will to choose, to seek after what we desire. And instead of desiring to seek after God, we desire to seek after our own things. The things that get our hearts excited that are not the Lord. The things that we want. And so whenever we leave God to seek what we want, we break our relationship with him and offend him and go after our own way. 
And when you offend an infinite and perfect, uncreated creator, you are deserving of an infinite punishment because God is just. Which means for us seeking after our own way, God's punishment comes upon us. But God loves us. He created us to be united with him and he doesn't want to destroy us. So what he decides to do is he decides to come onto the earth as a man named Jesus. Jesus is not different from God, but God himself. Living a perfect life without sinning, without breaking that relationship with God and then taking our punishment upon himself so that whenever we trust in him, we do not receive the punishment, but Jesus receives it instead. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, comes down from heaven and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus' life on this planet was simply so that we can all trust in him and be restored to God. He lived on this earth to teach us about the Lord and take the suffering and the punishment that we deserve for our sins. So that when we trust him to save us, he does. He is the final lamb. Saying this at Passover would have probably landed on the minds of a couple Jews. Of wait a second, the blood of the lamb saves us. Or it saved us back then. And so Jesus, mirroring Passover, says, I am the lamb that is to be slain. And when my blood covers you, God's judgment will pass over you. And so he's glorified by his death and his resurrection. He's magnified by his death and resurrection, honored, praised, and thought of because he died and rose again from the grave. And then in verse 24, he also says, if the grain dies, it dies alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What fruit is Jesus talking about? I think another practice that I had to get out of the habit of when reading the scriptures was I see a word that I know is in another scripture, like fruit, and then I say, ah, fruits of the Spirit. And I jump over to a letter from Paul, and I assume that when it says fruit here, it's talking about the same fruit there. But here, that's not the case. Fruit simply is the result of something. And so the result of the Spirit would be the fruit of the Spirit, but there's many more results of the Spirit. So what is Jesus talking about? What fruit is born through Jesus' death and resurrection is salvation and union with God for all the nations. The fruit of his life and resurrection is the restoration of God's people to himself so that they can glorify him. The fruit of life in Christ is God reviving his people to right worship of him so that we can go to others and speak to others about what God has given us. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but, um, well, yeah, at lunch, um, I have a student who wanted to read the Bible with me. And so we're reading John, or Matthew, no, John. And he isn't a believer, but he talked to me about what John 1 is talking about. And it says that Jesus gives life and gives light to others. And I said, what does this mean, do you think? And he said this. This is something that many Christians don't get. And he's not even a believer yet. He said, Jesus gives us light in the darkness so that we can give that light to others. We do not receive salvation just so that we can be like, sick, we're good. We receive salvation so that we can give that to others. 
Remember that these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And they were written so that you may have life in him. Therefore, brothers and sisters, or those in the room that are not believers, repent of your rebellion and trust Jesus with your salvation. Trust him to save you so that you can walk in his grace. Trust him to give you life. Stop seeking after life for yourself and trust him for it instead. And when you repent and believe, God's blood will cover you and his judgment will pass over you so that you may have life. Which leads us to our third and final point this morning. Is that Christians, Christ followers, magnify Jesus and nothing else. Christians glorify or magnify Jesus and nothing else. This comes from verses 25 through 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We asked earlier, what does Jesus say about himself? He is the death and resurrection of all life, that he gets life and he gives, a, uh, he gives us life so that we may bear fruit for him. He is the source of all life. So here we're going to ask, what is Jesus saying about his followers here? How does someone lose their life? Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. How does someone get eternal life? How do we not lose this life then? Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I've heard this passage preached on before whenever I was in youth. And time and time again, preacher after preacher, I would hear that this word here doesn't really mean hate. That it's talking about just love God more than you love other things. Or maybe dislike the things that you are doing in this world, but really, it's not really hate my whole life, right? Well, I did a quick Google search to the Greek, and the word hate here, just in case they translated it wrong, is the word miseo, which means to hate, to pursue with hatred, to detest, which means Jesus is not just saying hate your life in this world. He's saying detest it. Whoever loves their life, which means love, whoever loves their life in this world will lose it. But whoever detests their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We know that the people who receive life in Christ are those who are saved. So those that trust Jesus with their life, who surrender everything to him, are the ones that receive salvation and have eternal life. So he's saying those that are following Jesus, those who are trusting Jesus with their life, hate their life in this world. This concept of loving Jesus and hating our worldly lives is a concept that I got introduced to whenever I was a counselor at Canicut Camps. See, our director uh, would have the kids learn something over to the side with another teacher, and then he'd get all of his college students who are all hyped up, and he'd get us all together. And our director was this jacked, really, really intense guy. If you think that I'm intense, I do not hold a candle to this guy. He's insane. But he's amazing. Um, And he got us all together and he said, gentlemen, I have been dwelling on and meditating on this idea of holy discontentment. And I was like, we're not supposed to be discontent. We're supposed to be grateful and content with what we have. And then I thought about it some more. A holy discontentment. 
It's yes, I'm grateful for the life that Jesus has given me and for the blessings that I've received in this life. I'm grateful. But Jesus is an infinite well of life. And therefore he is deserving of infinite glory. And so a holy discontentment means I hate anything that keeps me from glorifying God and knowing God more. It's I am not content with how much glory God is receiving from my life, how much he's magnified through my life, how much honor he's receiving through my life. I am not satisfied with it. I want more. He's given me life, yes, but he is an infinite well. I want more life in Christ. It is I'm discontent with where I am with him. I want to be closer. Like these Greeks who said, ah, we've heard about him, but we want to know him more. And so they sought him more. This idea of hating our life in this world is hating not just the sin in this world, but our life in this world. A line from a song uh, by Beautiful Eulogy says, what exposes, exposes the worship in most of us is a close look at all of our thoughts, fears, and emotions. Which means what we think about, what we're afraid of, what stirs our emotions is that which we worship. And so if we are meant to hate our life in this world, those things are the things we're meant to hate. The nine to five life, the 401k life, a life focused and motivated by security, comfort, and safety. The sports life, the March Madness life right now is really getting me. The entertainment life, i.e. anything that does not bring others to honor and praise God. We hate anything that does not glorify him, our preferences or otherwise. And right now in our church culture, if our worship service doesn't fit our preferences, if our pastor doesn't say the things that we want him to say, if our church looks different or they don't have pews or they don't have a choir or whatever it is for our own preferences, we peace out and we go to a church that does. Hate this life in this world and love God. Die to your preferences. Our life is meant to be glorifying to him, to magnify his name. We're not even meant to think about ourselves, but die to ourselves anyway. And praise him and bring glory and magnification to him. And I'm not excluded from this. I mentioned earlier how when I read this passage, it was like conviction after conviction of things in my life that I am loving that isn't Christ. Things that I should have been hating. But that is what God's grace is for. I get really, I'm very prone to beat myself up over things that I'm doing wrong. But the reason that Jesus covers all of our sin is so that we can walk in his grace. And by walking in his grace, we have life in him. So how do we walk in his grace? How are we obedient to him? Verse 26, the last verse. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if we serve him, we must follow him. Well, where did he go? Moments later, he went to the cross. So as the disciples' ears are echoing Christ's command to follow him wherever he goes, they're looking up at him as he is getting brutally murdered. Follow me. Anyone who serves me, follows me. So where did he go? He went to the needy. He went away from self-preservation and he went to the grave so that all other people, all nations may worship him. So we walk in obedience, church. 
by following and walking in his grace and following him to those places, to the needy, to and away from comfort and to the grave. And if we're following him, we imitate the life that he led. So what type of life do we lead? Well, point two, he did everything for his glory, his magnification. So therefore we do everything for his glory. We work hard in our workplaces. We raise our families well, all for the glory of the Lord. But keep in mind, brothers and sisters, if we just work hard and raise our families, God is not going to receive glory from that because Muslims do that better than we do most of the time. This must be partnered with a constant and always outpouring of the gospel from our lips. People need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we serve the Jesus of the world, the savior of the universe. We serve Yahweh, the Christ, the one who is going to free them from their sins. So yes, work hard, but you work hard and you build respect so that when you share the gospel, people are more willing to listen. I do my job the best uh, that I can so that when I talk to my students and when I talk to my coworkers, they are more willing to listen. I share it first, they see my work ethic. I share it again, they hear it. Our life is meant to be an overflow of this gospel that has transformed us. So I encourage you, let's live for his majesty to be magnified in all places. Do the very best that you can in all areas with a constant, always sharing of his word so that he may be known. And if anyone serves me, we follow him. And where he is, there his servants are as well. And where is he now? Oh, he did not stay in the grave. He resurrected from the grave and he dwells now in perfect union with the Father. And so we too follow him to the grave so that when we die, he resurrects us and we now have perfect union with the Father. These words, yes, even these words of hating your life are written so that you may believe in Christ and have life in his name. So that by hating our life, And following Jesus to the grave, he resurrects us so that we can be dwelling in perfect unity with him. Would you rather live for this material world that is going away? Or would you rather live for eternity? That is the gospel. Like, yes, Jesus died, resurrected from the grave for our sins. That is the gospel. But to live it out conceptually in our lives and let it overflow is a life that's lived hating it and loving God. And I'll finish with this. He says that whoever loves his life loses it and hates his life gets it for eternal life, which means there's a cost. We surrender ourselves to the life that Jesus gives us. That is the cost. And as my wife said brilliantly, she said at some point we have to say that the cost of a life with Christ is great, but it is so worth it. And so now all that that is said and done, Seek Jesus as he is. Know him intimately. Praise him because he magnified his name by saving us and giving us life. And hate this life by living the life he gives us as we magnify his name and nothing else. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would magnify your life. Magnify your name through this church. Lord, that through the hating of our life and walking in the life that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified and that you would empower us by your grace to walk in a proper response to you. 
Lord, glorify yourself through our lives. May others magnify you. May others know you. May you be honored in this city because of the life that you give us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be pastors at the front if you need prayer as we uh, respond in worship.